thank you so much. Um, Journey Church, it is a pleasure to worship Jesus with you today. It's an honor uh, to be with you, to encourage you from the words of Scripture on behalf of your brothers and sisters in Christ over at Redeemer Christian Church who are worshiping right now um, over on Concrete Road. I want to bear you greetings and just let you know that um, we're honored to be those who worship Jesus with you. And it's a great privilege to be able to see how many different pastors around this city and this area have been able to come and serve this church in this transitional season. I think it's a wonderful testament to the beauty of the body of Jesus Christ and how at the end of the day, we're, we're not divided into different congregations. And in, in heaven, there's not going to be like a journey section and a redeemer section of heaven. We're just going to be there worshiping Jesus. And so um, I'm, I'm grateful that uh, today you get to just be a little bit of a sample of that as I get to spend the Sunday morning with you. Um, I'm going to go ahead and get right into our teaching today. If you have your Bibles or a smartphone, uh, you can open them up to Luke chapter 8. And the scripture reading that I'm going to be basing this uh, teaching out of is Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 52. They'll also be on the screen. And what we're going to do is I'm just going to read the entire section of scripture right at the beginning. Then we'll dive right into it. The word of the Lord begins. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him. For they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, where he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from you. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. And Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. When he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called her, saying, her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, and he charged them that no one should tell anyone. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, I thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that you speak to us. Thank you that you have disclosed yourself to us. And I pray that now the same Holy Spirit that authored these words would now illuminate our understanding. Lord, wherever there is darkness, may you shine light. Wherever there is death, may you bring forth life. Where there is pain, I pray that you would give comfort in a way that only you can. So, Lord, I pray that today, through this time that we can share together, that we would do more than just learn 
theological ideas about you. I pray that through your word, we would encounter Jesus, that we would know him, that we would believe him, and that we would trust him. In Christ's holy name, I pray these things. Amen. I'm going to begin by asking a question. The question really is going to be deceptively simple. If you were on the spot right now in this moment, ask the question, how would you define faith? How would you put a definition to words for this very common, this very known concept in Christianity? What is faith? How do we describe it? Many people in our culture would oftentimes characterize faith as the opposite of reason. In fact, whenever there's a debate between a Christian and an atheist, a lot of times that event will be promoted as a debate that is faith versus reason. It's almost conveying the idea that they're by nature opposed. The idea is that reason's based on evidence and faith is based on nothing. That just isn't true. Biblically speaking, the Christian faith carries very much about the notion of evidence. In fact, the linchpin of all Christianity is the belief that God himself entered into human history through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That he died, that he rose again. In fact, the New Testament that we have in our Bibles today is the record of testimony. It's the record of evidence of the apostles who were very much eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that definition is not going to work. Other people define faith as simple wish fulfillment. And here the idea is that faith is not what is true, but something that we want to be true. And so if I wish really hard for something to be a reality, that self-generated willpower will make it come true. It'll cause God's power to flow, and that will become the reality that I want. But faith has far more to do in the Bible with our response to God rather than God's response to us. After all, faith is, comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Maybe you might be tempted to think that faith is knowing simply a lot of true things about the Bible or maybe theological knowledge. But here the Bible also says that, well, even demons believe, they tremble. Demons have probably fairly accurate theology. They know a lot of true things about God, but that does not mean that they have faith and certainly not saving faith. So faith, if it's not the opposite of reason, and if it's not just mere wish fulfillment, and if it's not just uh, the mere containing of biblical knowledge, what is it? In fact, could it be that faith might just well be one of the mis most misunderstood words in the Christian vocabulary, both in church and in culture at large? Today, what I'd like for us to do for our remaining time is to look at Luke chapter 8, the passage that we just read. And here, I want to approach a biblical understanding of faith by looking at essentially three portraits of faith. The first portrait of faith that we will see today is simply the faith of a desperate father. Jesus has just arrived in the village. He's coming from the, the Sea of Galilee. He arrives on shore, and the crowds welcome Jesus with great joy. It's an environment that's pregnant with expectation and waiting. Suddenly, one of the leaders of the local synagogues casts aside all social decorum, all stature, all pretense, all pride, and he falls down before Jesus. His name is Jairus, and Jairus' only child is sick and on the verge of death. 
He begs Jesus to come, to lay his hands upon her and to pray. He wants Jesus to come right now in this moment to his home. He knows that Jesus is a healer, that he in this moment is his little daughter's only hope. He's desperate, and his problem is urgent. Now, thankfully, Jesus agrees all at once to go to his home, but along the way, they encounter an interruption. Out of nowhere, there's this woman who derails the entire process. Even losing a millisecond in such a moment would be beyond frustrating. Jesus is now going to take the time to investigate, to have a full-blown conversation with his disciples, with the crowd, and with this woman. Sure, the woman has suffered, but her situation is not going to get better by itself, but it's also not going to get any worse, is it? For the little girl, on the other hand, this is a life-or-death scenario. Two people need healing, but there's only one need of these two women that can be truly characterized as urgent. What's Jesus doing? Time is of the essence. I believe that Luke, the gospel writer, would have had a unique understanding and appreciated the dynamic of this situation. After all, the New Testament book of Colossians chapter 4, verse 4, describes Luke as the beloved physician, indicating that he probably had been a part of the medical profession at one point in his life. So we're going to put this situation into a 21st century American emergency room, an ER. Imagine two patients coming into the door. One patient, number one, has a fever of about 105, 106 degrees. She is in active seizure, and she is about to die. This is obviously Jairus' daughter. Patient number two is a woman who has struggled with a chronic but a a non-life-threatening situation, an issue. This is the woman, obviously, with the issue of blood. This woman has been to her primary care physician. She has tried a bunch of medical treatments to absolutely no avail. She's even switched doctors, but the second doctor wasn't able to help her as well. She then goes to specialists. They are not able to help her. In desperation, she starts trying every single natural remedy. And this is the woman who is typing into Google, and anything that comes up, she's going to try. She'll try this supplement. She'll try this colloidal silver. She'll try this essential oil. She's tried every single thing she can imagine. It just doesn't work. It's completely out of her control. And now, after more than a decade of suffering, her savings are exhausted. And this day she's just had enough. So she just goes to the ER. What would happen in this scenario? We might ask what should happen. I once called one of our church members that is an ER physician, and I asked him this very question. I asked him about this very scenario. And he told me that essentially when a patient arrives in the ER, they're not seen in the order that they come in, but instead they are classified and they are prioritized by the severity of their situation. This process is called triage. It's a very common word. You've probably heard it. And and during this process of triage, a medical professional will evaluate and assign the incoming patient to an ESI number. ESI stands for the Emergency Severity Index. The ESI scale goes from 1 to 5. 1 requires immediate life-saving treatment or resuscitation, whereas a five is classified as non-emergent. Now, on this scale, the little girl with a high temperature and, and the seizures 
would at least be an ESI 2, but more likely she would probably be classified immediately as an ESI 1. In such a case, she would be immediately given a room, the doctor would be interrupted no matter what he or she was doing and start treating this patient. The woman with the issue of blood, on the other hand, would be considered an ESI 1. On a very busy day, she would be potentially required to wait in the waiting room for up to 20 hours. Once she was seen, it would be possible for her to receive nothing more than just a screening and a referral back to her primary care physician without any treatment of any kind. I asked my doctor friend, okay, so what if this scenario comes your way and you intentionally stop everything and you choose to treat and have a conversation with the ESI 5 patient when your ESI 1 patient is dying and, oh, by the way, she dies in the waiting room. His response was, oh, I would definitely be sued. I would absolutely be sued. But this is exactly what Jesus does. This is messianic malpractice, right? Can you imagine this moment being Jairus? Your daughter is dying, and the world's most famous healer has showed up in your town, in your village. You come to him. You entreat him. He agrees to come to your home at once. You did what was right. You humbled yourself before him. But then this woman comes and ruins everything. Jesus gets distracted by a seemingly non-urgent matter. But here's the thing. Jesus is not working in Jairus' timeline. And as you will follow Jesus, you will come to know that he will not oftentimes work according to our preferences, our schedules, our scales of urgency. What Jairus does not know, and what he could not possibly know in this moment, is that Jesus has far greater in store for his daughter. Jesus could have told Jairus, Jairus, I want to give your daughter more than healing. I want to give your daughter resurrection. He doesn't say that. Instead, he says, do not fear. Only believe. See, Jesus is inviting Jairus into a deeper faith. Jairus is desperate. He is humble, and he believes that Jesus is more than capable. But Jesus is inviting Jairus as he's inviting us into a faith that is not just trusting, but patient. A faith that is able to trust in the power of God, even at the face of death. How might God inviting you to that deeper trust in him are there areas in your life that right now you need to submit to you need to entrust unto god's perfect timing god's perfect wisdom and god's perfect power when we are desperate and in a place of urgency we can't be guaranteed that all circumstances will work out in the way that we want or the way that we expect but we can know that jesus is powerful and we can trust that Jesus is good. We can rest in the fact that Jesus is in control when our lives feel utterly out of control. And then that leads us to the second portrait of faith, a daring interrupter. Now, from Jairus' perspective, it would be easy to really dehumanize this woman with the issue of blood. He has a life and death situation on his hands, and this woman cuts him off in traffic. How selfish. 
How inconsiderate does she have to be? But as anyone who has suffered chronic ailment knows very well, even an issue that is medically non-urgent can bring a person to a place of hopelessness, a place of great pain. This woman has suffered from one's health issue for more than a decade, 12 years to be exact. She's in pain. She's embarrassed. And under the old Jewish law, she was considered to be ceremonially unclean and even untouchable. But not only has she suffered from her disease, she also seems to have suffered from the cures as well. After trying doctor after doctor and probably a few natural remedies, the woman is now poor as much as she is sick. She's on the outside looking in at everyone else's blessings of life, blessings that everyone else seems to experience, but not her. Then Jesus comes to town. And whether it was an act of inspiration or pure desperation, she draws near to Jesus. She doesn't want to be seen. She doesn't want to be noticed. And so she approaches him from behind. His back is to her. From behind Jesus, she reaches out and she touches the hem of his garment. She doesn't even touch him. And suddenly, healing power is released from Jesus. And in that instant, she is healed. Jesus stops. He asks the question, who touched me? And Peter, you know, the, the bolder disciple, the, the disciple that tends to state what everyone else is thinking, the guy who states the obvious, says, Jesus, you're on a crowded street. Everyone is pressing in on you. Literally everyone is touching you, Jesus. Jesus knows that this woman is listening. He knows that her heart is pounding. He knows that she wants to go unnoticed, but he sees her. He has seen her in the midst of her pain. He has seen her from before the time she was ever born. And Jesus wants her to know why she has been made whole in this moment. It's not superstition. It's not a magic garment that has healed this woman. Jesus wants her to know that it was her faith that has brought about her salvation. In fact, when Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. That, that word well is, has been saved. Your faith has saved you. Like a woman, a lot of times when we begin to have faith, our ideas about God might be wildly unbiblical. They might be riddled with error and misconceptions. Oftentimes our faith begins with maybe even just a simple selfish desperation for change. But even a mustard seed of such imperfect faith can lead us to a genuine love for Jesus that matures and grows as we walk with him day to day. Because here's the good news. It's not the perfection of our faith that saves us. It's the perfection of Jesus that saves us. Pastor Timothy Keller describes it this way. He says, imagine you're falling off a cliff. And sticking out of the cliff is a branch that is strong enough to hold you, but you don't know how strong it is. And as you fall, you have just enough time to grab that branch. How much faith do you have to have in the branch for it to save you? Must you be totally sure that it can save you? No, of course not. You only have to have enough faith to grab the branch. That's because it's not the quality of faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith. It is. It doesn't matter how you feel about the branch. 
all that matters is the branch. Jesus is the branch. And leads us to point number three, dead child. For a brief moment in the serious story, there is joy at this miraculous healing of the woman with the issue of blood. But then Jairus' servants interrupt the scene and everything goes very, very quiet. The servant says to Jairus, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus is undeterred. He enters the home for a few moments. This was an environment of fervent prayer, but now this home is transformed into a funeral parlor. It's now a place of death, pain, and weeping. Jesus says, do not weep, for she's not dead. She's only sleeping. But the mourners cynically laugh. They know that this little girl is dead. They know that hope is gone. So Jesus takes only his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. He also takes the little girl's parents. They enter into the little girl's room. And without any type of complex magic spell or ritual or fanfare really of any kind, Jesus takes this little girl gently by the hand. He says, child, rise. At once her spirit returns and she rises from For everyone else, the situation is absolutely and utterly hopeless. The story is over. The battle is lost. But to Jesus, resurrection is no more difficult than waking a child from a nap. Even death is not the end of the story for Jairus. Now, what is this little girl lying on the bed, absolutely dead? How can this possibly teach us something about the nature of faith? What does she bring to the table? When it comes to faith, it's absolutely nothing. That's the point. See, saving faith is a faith that recognizes that all we contribute to salvation is the death from which we need to be rescued. The Bible says of all of us, you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked. We were not good people in need of encouragement. We were not wounded people in need of help. We were not sick people in need of healing. We were not even dying and in the need of intervention we were dead in our sin we need a resurrection that only jesus christ can bring spiritual death that is our condition outside of christ we can't save ourselves but it's only when we know that we were dead that we can embrace the hope of amazing grace as ephesians chapter 2 reminds us for by grace you've been saved through faith And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Which means that outside of Christ, we have a problem that we cannot fix by ourselves. It also means that no matter where you are in the journey of life, your story is not over. No matter how hopeless your situation might feel, The situation is not hopeless. There is no depth to which the hand of Christ is not able to reach out and touch us and save us. This little girl is Jairus' only child. But Jesus is God's only son. God so loved Jairus and he so loved the world in which Jairus lived that he would send his only son that whoever would believe, whoever would have faith in him, not perish, but have eternal and everlasting life. 
Jesus' death on the cross rescues us from the power of death. His resurrection life is the doorway for our eternal life. And the instrument of this miracle of salvation is faith. Now the account of this double miracle makes it into three out of the four gospel accounts. Matthew tells this story, Mark will tell the story, and of course Luke, which we just read, tells the story. But there is something special about this particular gospel accounts. Of all the gospel accounts that share the story, Luke tells us something that none of the other gospel authors include. And that is the age of the little girl. She is 12 years old. And fascinatingly, 12 years happens to be the exact length of time that the woman of this issue of blood has suffered her ailment. In other words, it was the same year this little girl was born that this other unrelated woman begins to suffer. Initially, so much of this story looks like happenstance. Jesus just happens to arrive in Jairus' village on the exact day that his daughter is dying. As he turns to go to Jairus' house, he just happens to walk down a road that is near to this woman with the issue of blood who has suffered chronically all these years. She just happens to reach out and touch him. He just happens to notice and to stop and to have a conversation with her at the exact moment that this little girl happens to die. Could it be that all of these life journeys of this dying little girl and this poor suffering woman were destined by the providence of God to intersect and to culminate in this exact moment on this exact day? Could it be that what looked like random, pointless, and meaningless pain and anguish had a purpose that no one could have ever expected? A God that is this powerful, a God that is this wise, is worthy of more than just our worship, is worthy of our trust. In fact, that's exactly how many of the early church fathers would define faith. Faith was defined really in three words by the Latin church fathers, notitia, essentius, and fiducia. Faith meant notitia or knowing, but it was more than that. Faith also meant essentius, which means that faith was to believe in what was true about God. The, the highest apex of faith was not just knowing the truth. It wasn't just believing the truth. It was trusting that God was real. It was resting in his reality resting in his goodness, resting in the truth of his power. Recently, I was reminded how true this is when my friend John recounted a story of his family to our small group. My wife and I have known John and his wife, Rebecca, for more than a decade. They met one another, in fact, at a college ministry that I led many years ago, and I witnessed them become friends. I witnessed them become more than friends, and I stood with them the day that they made a covenant with one another to become man like many young couples that were married, they looked forward to the day when they would have children together. As their friends and as their siblings would welcome babies into their home, John and Rebecca would oftentimes go to the hospital waiting room. And they would be there when the, the newly minted dad would present the child that had just been born to them. And they were always looking forward to their moment. They were always looking forward to their return. Tragically, their return never came. After trying various treatments and remedies and undergoing various medical evaluations, it was determined 
that it was medically impossible for John to ever have a biological child. Heartbroken and devastated, this couple begins to plead and pray to the Lord. They end up feeling led by the Holy Spirit to open their home to foster children who need a home. And they don't just foster, they're, they're fostering with the intent to adopt. Before they knew it, a precious two-year-old girl joined their home. She was the daughter of a single mom who went to prison for heartbreaking reasons, I will not say. And instantly, this couple fell in love with this little girl. They knew that without the pain, without the grief that they suffered from infertility, this precious little girl would never have joined their home. But then less than a year later, they welcomed twin newborn little girls into their family through adoption as well. And so they go from zero to three kids in less than a year. That's a change of life, right? Soon, Rebecca is promoted at her job. The family buys a new house. And even though there are struggles in life, parenthood, life was going in the right direction. But suddenly and unexpectedly, tragedy strikes. Late one Saturday night, actually, as I was preparing to sleep and then preach the next morning, I get a frantic text from my friend, John. Rebecca is in the hospital. She is in this moment undergoing emergency surgery. If the operation is successful, if the operation is successful, She'll be immediately life-flighted to a hospital in Dallas to see a specialist. So I rushed to the hospital. And I remember stepping into the waiting room with my friend and his family. And I remember witnessing his face as he weighed the prospect of being a widower and a single dad with three little girls. We prayed together. And by the grace of God, his wife Rebecca comes through. She fights. She makes it. And the coming weeks would reveal that she had a congenital issue that had she ever known about, and if she had ever become pregnant, that pregnancy likely would have ended her life. This many prior years that was filled with pain, anguish, and questions of God, why, why would you do this? God was all along with them. He was hearing every one of their prayers, and he was protecting them from something they could not know, something that they could not see. Later, when their oldest little daughter turns six years old, the couple celebrated her birthday alongside their nephew. By the way, here's the crazy thing. This nephew that also turned six on that day was not just born the same day as their daughter. He was born in the same hospital, on the same floor. It was on this particular birthday. After Rebecca's life was spared, after they come to this knowledge of how God had been protecting them the whole time, the family receives a picture Rebecca and John waiting in the hospital waiting room, waiting for their nephew. But what they could have never known all those years ago is that God's perfect wisdom, perfect providence, perfect power brought together a man who could not have children with a woman who should not have children. This very spot, this very moment, just down the hall, a little girl who would become their daughter was being Faith is not the opposite of fantasy. Faith is not wishful thinking. Faith is not even perfect doctrine. Faith is a desperate father who casts aside dignity to plead with Jesus, but then patiently trust Jesus and trust the promises that he makes when our circumstances are so confusing and baffling to us. Faith 
is a daring woman who presses through the crowd to touch even the hem of a rabbi's robe and then publicly acknowledges the saving power of Jesus. Faith is knowing that we bring nothing to the table but the death from which we need to be rescued. Faith knows that God is working for our good and his glory and the heartache of infertility and the threat of death and the broken cry of unanswered prayers. Time and time again, through scripture and through lived experience of his people, Jesus has shown us that he is faithful. He's a God who makes promises. And he's a God who has kept his promises. He's shown us that his wisdom is infinite, that his power is limitless, that he is more committed to keeping the promises that he makes with us than we could ever imagine, even to the point of death. Because of one day, Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, there is a day coming when death itself will die, and he will wipe away all tears. Journey Church, we can do more than just know him believe in him today will you be invited to trust in him rest in him in deeper ways than you've ever known do not fear only believe this is faith amen amen let's pray together almighty god our heavenly father thank you for giving us the gift of your word your word that is capable of giving hope to the hopeless. Your word that is capable of bringing wholeness to all that is broken. Your word that is capable of breathing life into death. Today, may your Holy Spirit be with us, comfort us. I pray for the people right now in this moment who are in this room that are hurting. Would your Holy Spirit be to them for those that are dealing with situations that they can't know, that they can't understand, I pray that you would birth within them a faith that is patient. For all of us, would your Holy Spirit convince us that your power is limitless, that even the power of death is not greater than you. So Lord, as we worship you, as we respond to you in our prayers and our praise, would your Holy Spirit sign and seal your word be within us. This would be a congregation known for its faith. We pray this in Jesus' name, mighty name. Amen. Amen. Praise the to pray with you to be thankful that our God in heaven loves us what love could remember 